Ephesians chapter 1. We made it through most of verse 4 last week. I make no promises about not being as ramped up this week, especially considering the content before us. But I do want to read verses 1 through 14 again. Ephesians 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Verse 4, just as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him in love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved in him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace when he lavished on us which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight according to the kind intention which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens, things on the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, which works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who was given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to and redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. We start off with the end of verse 4. In love, church, I want you to know that God has done everything for you in love. In fact, God cannot do anything outside of love. Love is his nature, it's his attribute, it's his MO. Love is from God. In other words, the only way that you can experience true love is to be born of God, 1 John 4, 7. The only way you can participate and receive his love is to be born of God. In fact, love is such an important characteristic of being a Christ follower that John says in 4.8 of 1 John, if you don't love, you don't actually know God. If you don't have the capacity to love each other, then you do not know God, for God is love. The point being is that love is an innate thing. It's a, it has to be accompanied with your Christ walk. I don't know about you, but I know a fair amount of people that claim to know Christ, but their actions don't really back up that according to that scripture. You know what I mean? It's not simply saying that you love someone, but there must be action to back it up. That's the, the proof that we are in God. John tells us that we cannot love God and hate our brother and sister. Oh, how heartbreaking that would be, the realization for so many in the church want to ask you in a spirit of gentleness this morning for you to examine your own heart. Is there someone in this church, someone in any church, 
that you don't want to be around. Someone in any church that you don't want to fellowship with. Someone here that you don't want to speak with or that used to be here. Frankly, I have a concern that if any of those things be true, that you don't really love God in the capacity that you claim you do. Now, I know this is direct, but I want you to give an honest thought to this verse, 1 John 4.20. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. Now, back to the matter at hand. God is love, and because we are now in Christ, he enables us to love others. So that very same, in love, as sort of a parenthesis around this entire book, this letter to the churches at Ephesus, Paul wants us to know that everything God has done for us in love, we then should turn around and be able to extend that love to everyone else. Why? Because he first loved us. You know, it's not the other way around. You didn't love God and then he said, well, I guess I'll love him back. God loved you before you were made. In fact, he loved the whole world. So God made them just the way they are, even knowing that they would reject them. Reject him. Pause and seal and meditate upon that for a moment. God made the most wicked person down the street that you can think of. The one that keeps throwing his lawn clippings over your fence. That's pretty wicked. I've got great neighbors. <laughs> That's as bad as it gets, guys. God made them just the way they are. Wouldn't it have been easier for God just to not make Adolf Hitler? But he loved them. God loved you before you were made. How do we know that God loves you? That he loves me? How do we know that his love was proven for us? Well, 1 John 4, 9 says, By this the love of God was manifested in us that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. That's love. In love, God sent Jesus Christ, and this is what we see here in Ephesians 1, verse 4. In love, in love, we can actually live in Christ. We can live in God because of that love for you. All those sins, all those times you didn't listen to the Holy Spirit, you rejected God. Yet God still loved you enough that he would send Jesus Christ to die for you. Beloved, God is love. And everything since that moment he spoke the world into existence was done in love. Well, how can you say that, Pastor? Didn't God wipe out thousands, even millions of people in the Bible? The flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, the Amalekites, the Philistines, etc. See, many critics of the Bible see God as a moral tyrant who obliterates many seemingly innocent nations and he cleanses even ethically, some argue. However, that is not the case. First, you must understand that no one is innocent. Not in the Bible times and not now. We all have fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible also says that no one will be without excuse before God in Romans 1, verse 20. Romans chapter 1, verse 20. And that we don't have to be a Christian to know right from wrong. It's built in inside of us. God gave us that conscience, that Holy Spirit that 
testifies of his creation and of his greatness. Secondly, judgment was always God's last resort. He waited patiently 430 years to judge the Canaanite nation because of their sin. Not having reached its peak with Sodom and Gomorrah, which Abraham pled that if there was merely 10 righteous people left in the city, God, would you not spare them? God had agreed because he is slow to anger and patient. Not to mention the oldest man that ever lived, Methuselah. How many years was he? 969 years. That's a good long life. Some of you getting close. Only, only another 100, 900 to go. <laughs> What is the retirement age when you can live to a thousand years? <laughs> you know, I don't think they had the welfare like we do. Do you know what Methuselah's name meant? Anyone got a guess? It means something to the effect of when he dies, it shall come. Or some have said, put a little bit of emphasis on it after this, the flood. But when he dies, it shall come. What year did Methuselah die? The year God shut Noah and his family in the ark. 969 years was a warning to the people. And if, it, if you don't believe that, fine. Noah was a preacher of righteousness, 120 years. Warned. Well, God is not some maniacal, evil sadistic person he's loving and he waited patiently for those to repent 120 years Noah preached righteousness and repentance to them even the not so popular Old Testament prophets who warned of impending judgment they depict God's mercy by throwing in a heads up you think perhaps of Jonah in chapter 3 perhaps Rahab in Jericho you see in Joshua chapter 2 even a non-Jew prostitute would be accepted. Thirdly, God's destruction was never the result of ethnic cleansing. Rather, it was cleanse, to cleanse idolatry. In fact, even the Assyrian and Babylonian nations chastened God's people for caving into idolatry. So there was always a reason, but it was always with patience and with love that God would wipe out a people that were not worshiping Him. So in light of potentially killing thousands and millions of people that are recorded in the Bible, the real question should be, how can a holy, perfect God love us so much that he put his perfect divine self on the cross for a sinful and wicked people? It's not in light of, of all the death, how can you say that God would love us? It's in light of our wickedness, how could God put himself on the cross for us? That's the view of a God that loves you. In love, verse 5, he predestined you to adoption as sons. That's not male specific, as daughters if you prefer. Beloved, I want you to know that God loves you. He's always loved you. He will always love you. Nothing you can do will ever get in the way of that. Now before I go into this next phrase, he predestined and he chose, verse 4, and also in verse 11, it says he predestined. 
I want to preface that this might be one of the hardest teachings in the letter to Ephesians to preach with clarity while leaving no room for questions. I suspect that some in this congregation um, will not agree with everything that I have to say on this perspective, and that's okay. This is not a matter of salvation. And so, as always, I want to invite you to speak with me if you have a question or disagreement on this particular topic of predestination and free will. The verse, in love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. Now, I want to circle back to this idea in verse 4. We sort of skipped over it very quickly last week. Chose. He chose us. He chose you. He also predestined you according to his will. That's what it says. He chose you before the foundation of the world. That means he chose you before you were born, before you were created. It also means that he chose you before you chose him. How can that be? Now, I fear that I've already lost some of you. You're thinking, so what? Here's the contention. If God chose you before you chose him, does that mess with your free will? Wait a second. You're telling me that I didn't have a choice to choose God? That no matter what, this was the the destination for my life. Well, that's what we're going to try and solve here this morning. Believe it or not, in the next five minutes, which is certainly not going to happen. So you might as well just buckle up. Many people believe that verses 4 and 5 clearly indicate the teaching of unconditional election. That means that God has sovereignly decided in advance who will be saved, completely apart from human decision. Unconditional election is that teaching which God declares before time who will be saved and who will not. While I don't particularly want to get into a debate about Calvinism versus Arminianism this morning, I do believe that in the context of this chapter, it may be helpful to look at divine election a little bit more closely. I will save a more detailed outlining of the differences between those major teachings For small group settings, I've actually taught through them twice in my teaching through Ephesians and um, in Romans chapter 9 when we came to it as a small group. Shameless plug for home groups here. The truth is, Sunday morning is not a great place for every sort of teaching. You need to fill yourself up with Sunday school. You need to fill yourself up with small groups when they do start up again. You need to fill yourself up with men's and women's Bible studies. You need to fill yourself up with personal study and edification. I cannot cover everything in the Word of God in 30 minutes. It would take us, you'd be dead. Me too, I'd be dead. We'll say it that way, it's a little less offensive. I'll be dead. (laughs) I'll be dead before I get through it. Now, I don't particularly like to identify myself as Arminian or as Calvinist. Rather, I'm a Christ follower. Anytime you sort of pick sides, what you're indirectly doing is laying another brick on the dividing wall that Jesus had already come to tear down. And this is true when it comes to being staunchly committed to a particular denomination as well. There are great assemblies of God churches, for example. I'm sure there are some pretty lousy ones. There's probably some wonderful Baptist churches, and I'm sure there's lousy ones. There's great Catholic churches and probably some lousy ones. The problem lies when you associate yourself with one party as a sort of distinguishing mark. Oh, I'm Calvinist. I'm Arminian. We see this all throughout the New Testament. First, it was Jew and Gentile, or Greek, barrier. There was Pharisee and Sadducee, barrier, disagreement. 
There was the Stoics and the Epicureans. There were barriers. Now we've got Calvinist Arminians. We've got Reformed. We've got free will. We've even got black and white. You know, Christ does not glory in a black Baptist church any more than he would over a white Baptist church. Well, that sounds bad, doesn't it? Why am I even throwing color into it? Do you know why? It's divisive. It's not healthy. It's not love. It's not Christ's way. Anytime you identify yourself with anything but being a follower of Christ Jesus, you are alienating yourself from your brothers and sisters that may look or think a little bit differently than you. So first and foremost, we need to strive for unity, not disunity. Are you having a good time here in truth this morning? You're feeling a little bit awkward. I assure you, if you feel awkward, you're going to have a really hard time when we get to the fifth chapter of Ephesians. I digress. So while I could take some time to present in-depth differences between election and free will camps without pressuring you necessarily into picking one over the other, my question is why, what would it even benefit us this morning? I could certainly cherry-pick passages and make one side look more attractive, as many do. And unless you were well-read and prepared for this debate this morning, I would likely be able to sway many of us one way or the other. The thing is, this debate goes back to 500 years plus. And truthfully, I do not expect that me and my barely educated self are going to be able to add anything of value to the discussion. When we're faced with making decisions about following John Wesley or should we follow Charles Spurgeon or should we read only C.S. Lewis's works or John Bunyan's or should we only study Adam Clark's commentary or A.W. Pink's? Should we pick both? Should we pick neither? Well, truthfully, I find deception on both sides of the debate, and I find truth on both sides of the debate. So on the one hand, I do not want to sheepishly avoid these verses because they're difficult. On the other hand, I believe it's best this morning not to stir the cauldron of confusion and division while encouraging anyone to pick sides. Instead, let's just read the scriptures in this passage and use the rest of the word of God as commentary. Here is the understanding I currently have some of this taken from Chuck Smith's so-called exposition that is available online. We are looking at how God chose us and predestined us without infringing on our so-called, quote-unquote, free will. Do you know God did not choose you after you decided to clean up your act and live for him? God didn't say, oh, all right, I'm going to choose Eric now that he has chosen me. The word of God says that God chose me before the foundations of the world. Well, you may think that's not fair. That's infringing on my free will. It also means that if, if God is chosen who is going to be saved, that he also chooses who's not going to be saved. But it doesn't say that, does it? So you won't find a verse in support of that anywhere. Do not add to Scripture. And yet, that very hypothetical question is exactly what a traditional five-point Calvinist teaches. Not all, but a staunch five-point Calvinist, if you're familiar with the term, teaches limited atonement that although the death of Jesus, and I want to quote this so not to misconstrue, that although the death of Jesus could have paid for the sins of the whole world, in actuality, Jesus only died for his elect, his chosen. Well, I've got some news for you all this morning in the form of a scripture, not opinion. 
And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, 1 John 2, 2. And not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Also, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, 2 Peter 3, 9 says, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So before you make an argument about why God sovereignly decides or what he sovereignly decides, be sure to read the entirety of the word of God. Unconditional election teaches that God chooses to give some eternal life. The flip side to that coin is that it also teaches that he does not give the majority or he predestines some to hell, as some teach. Some explain it further and teach that you don't even have the ability to choose God at all, that you're totally depraved. That you literally are, are, are just waiting on the Holy Spirit to enable you to make that choice after he has chosen you. You can only be awakened by the Spirit if God has chosen you. So you just better hope that you have been predestined to heaven. because That's what some believe. Well, I reject that. I do not believe that God has predestined any to hell. John three sixteen and 17, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to what? Condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. God didn't send his son to condemn us. Why would God condemn us before you were born? That doesn't match with the nature of God, does it? Listen, he died for the whole world. How could he send some to hell? The truth of the matter is that predestination and free will are in the Bible. Sometimes they're right next to each other. Well then, pastor, how do you know if you've been chosen by God? You want to know? Some of you do. Some of you are a little nervous now. Believe in Jesus Christ. You'll be saved. Guess what? You have just confirmed that you've been chosen by God. Well, pastor, how can you reconcile that he chose you before the foundation of the world then? You guys didn't know you were getting into philosophy this morning, did you? <laughs> well, there's a little word that we see in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, and in Romans 8, 29, and it all boils down to this. I believe God chooses us according to his foreknowledge. Because God knows all things, it is impossible for him to learn anything new. If God could learn anything, in fact, that means that he's not omniscient. He's not all-knowing. God already knows. He knows what you're going to eat tonight. A little creepy, isn't it? Wait a second, but I haven't decided what I'm going to eat. Yeah, God still knows. He knows that you're going to now debate about whether or not you should change what you're going to eat because you want to have free will. He knows right exactly what you're thinking. God cannot learn anything new. So it's according to his foreknowledge that you and I were chosen. It's because he knew in advance. Let me give you an analogy. Imagine you had the capacity to know everything before it happens. Boy, wouldn't that change your lot in life a little bit. Some of you might not have chosen your partner. Don't look to your left or right. <laughs> Some of you might have gone to the racetrack, lined your pockets a little, played the lottery, 
pick the right numbers. Some of you are just thinking about your elementary school dodgeball team and that time you lost because you chose the wrong person. You know, I've made some choices in my life that I was sorry I made afterwards. I've said some things that I regretted afterward. I bought a house I regretted later. Any of you ever done that? I'm the only one? Okay. <laughs> what a nice bunch you are. <laughs> Do you know it'd be kind of stupid to choose losers? if you knew in advance, wouldn't it? Better yet, I want you to know that God chose you because you're a winner. That's the thing. God chose you before you were born. That proves one thing, that you're on the winning team. By virtue of the fact that I have been chosen, it ensures that I am going to win, that I'm going to be in His eternal kingdom. I was chosen in Him before the foundations of the world. Now, you should give, get tremendous comfort from this thought, and here's this part that is often overlooked in this passage, and in my opinion, this is absolutely praiseworthy. To me, it magnifies the love of God, and it strengthens the work of Jesus. It's this little phrase consisting of a preposition and a pronoun. We see it all throughout this chapter, and they're not always the same pronoun and preposition, but I want to just point out a few. Verse 3, you were blessed with, a, with spiritual blessings in Him. Verse 4, you were chosen in Him. Verse 5, you were predestined through Him. Verse 6, you were bestowed His love on you in the Beloved. Verse 7, in Him we have redemption through His blood. Verse 9, He made known to us the mystery of His will in Him. Who's this Him? Christ Jesus. Verse 13, in him you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. Are you getting it, church? Christ was a chosen one according to the Old Testament, Isaiah 42, verse 1. And so we believers participate in the chosenness of Christ, if you will. I know that's not a word, but it fits theologically. Christ was chosen as the elect to die on the cross. He was perfect. And so when we are baptized into Christ Jesus, the moment we believe... Ephesians 1.13, we actually participate in his divine election over us. You want to know how you're chosen? You're chosen because you believed in Christ Jesus and were baptized into Christ. That's foreknowledge. God saw the end from the beginning and said, this one's going to choose me. I choose him. He's mine. I'm writing him in my book right now. This is outlined in 1 Peter chapter 2. Jesus called the elect one on whom mankind, Jesus is called the elect one on whom mankind must believe. Verses 4 and 6 of 1 Peter 2 says, coming to him as a living stone which has been rejected by men. Here's a choice, isn't it? Choice. Some reject him. But this stone is choice and precious in the sight of God. Choice. You also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. How do we offer sacrifices? Through Jesus Christ. Again, preposition, pronoun. Well, that's not a pronoun there. Preposition and noun. Through him that we can do it. 
For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice or elect or the chosen one, a precious cornerstone. He who believes in him will not be disappointed. We believe in the chosen one and we become chosen. As people of the elect one, God will save us when we believe in him. That's what makes our election possible. We have peace with God because we're justified by faith, Romans 5.1. And so Jesus makes our union with Christ possible. Yes, we've been elected, but our election to salvation is only possible because Jesus sealed us in him. That's Ephesians 1.13, again, if you want to read it. We're sealed in him because we believed after first hearing. So actually, let's just look at that word, that word cause and effect. Verse 13 of Ephesians 1, if you're still there. In him, after, notice that word, listening to the message of the truth, which is the gospel of your salvation, having also believed. So a couple things going on here. You heard the word, then you believed it. After all of that, you were sealed in Christ with the Holy Spirit of promise. You've got to hear the word. How beautiful are the feet of the one who brings good news. This is the importance of the gospel message. You hear the word, you believe the word, it's a choice. God the Father seals you in the work of Christ Jesus, the elect and chosen one, that precious cornerstone that many will reject. He gives us a choice. These words shouldn't be taken lightly. I want you to see that progression here and know it. Listen to the truth, believed in Jesus, then you're sealed in that order. We were foreknown and chosen and then adopted. This is the only way that it makes sense in all of the other passages together in the Gospels. Jesus said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, to every nation. Why would we do that if God had already chosen those that would be in him? What's the point? Belief leads to salvation. This belief leads to condemnation. Mark 16, 15 and 16 says, He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. There's cause and effect. We must choose Christ. We must believe in him. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus came to give life to the world, not just the select few. I want us to, as we close out this morning, whatever you believe about predestination and an election, remember that these are just biblical concepts. They together are both scriptural. You must never throw these teachings out, these words out, be afraid of them because our finite minds cannot understand perfectly how God the Father works. On the other hand, I want to caution us all before we leave from here. That if you are only able to believe something about a particular concept or teaching by ignoring certain verses, then you are most likely being deceived. You have to look at the entire word of God for truth. So lastly, remember that our beliefs about these matters do not affect our salvation, as I said. We ought to be gracious to Christians who differ on this subject 
matter.